Wesson and the Wesson Vampire Cult Massacre. The Vampire King of Fresno. He started a cult. He was a killer and most definitely a creep. Walk the path on a dark and macabre journey of incest, vampires, vampire Jesus, coffin beds, extreme paranoia, and finally mass murder. Come join us for this twisted tale on the first ever edition of what the heck did I just click on? Cults, killers, and creeps. I'm Joel McClure, and before we begin, I want to throw out a little disclaimer. Although I have attempted to present the facts of the story as accurately as possible, every story has its many sides, dates, and times may differ. Even the ages of some of the characters involved may be different from one another and each cited source. This is because, try as I may, to be scrupulous in my research, many of the legal documents involved differ on ages, dates, and times. I will be dealing with many psychological issues and diagnoses throughout the course of this podcast. That being said, I am not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. In developing this show, I have used interviews, police reports, and court documents whenever possible to establish and corroborate facts as much as possible. The contents of the story I'm about to tell you will be graphic. It will be shocking. At times, it's going to be explicit in detail. We are going to deal with child abuse. We are going to deal with molestation. We are going to deal with incest. I'm going to try and tell the story with as much respect for the victims and survivors as I possibly can. That being said, let's dive right in. On March 12, 2004, a self-proclaimed vampire god emerged from the shadows, clothing soaked in blood. He had just finished slaughtering his own family members. Officer Eloy Escanero was the first to enter the building. He was followed by Officer Tello. Eloy Escanero made his way down the darkened corridor, slowly approaching the door to the southeast bedroom with his shotgun drawn. He noticed the door ajar. Pushing it open, he waved his flashlight across the room. All he could see were the outlines of shapes beginning to form. His eyes adjusted to the darkness. Three large coffins were leaned up against the wall. Officer Tello entered the room and found a light switch along the wall. He turned it on. Escanero dropped his shotgun in horror. Bodies were stacked on the east corner of the room where a large pool of blood on the floor. The eldest victims, the most visible, covered the bodies of the children. But who was Marcus Dallas Wesson? The answer to the question is going to depend on who you ask. 
because unlike many stories, this story is fractured. It has many tendrils and spider webs like a broken window pane. Wesson's surviving children claim he was a loving father. He involved himself with every aspect of their lives. One of Wesson's sisters remembers Marcus as a young and delightful boy who loved animals and had a natural gift for healing. Police prosecutors, most of the rest of the public, and certainly myself, think Wesson was an evil like the witch the world has never seen. Any love Marcus Wesson bestowed upon his children was from a perverse and abomination to the very word love itself. How can a man accused of the atrocities to follow have developed from a loving, nurturing, kind, and established young man that his siblings and mother remember? To the vile and monstrous creature we are about to meet. Marcus Dellis Wesson was born on August 22, 1946, in Kansas, to Benjamin and Carrie Wesson. Benjamin was an abusive alcoholic with violent streaks, reportedly, and Carrie was a religious fanatic. But this is according to her sons, Marcus. Marcus seems to have lived a relatively uneventful life until he became obsessed with religion, a religion in which he created, most would label it a cult. For the purpose of this show, we will define a cult as a religion, regarded as unorthodox or suspicious. In modern English, a cult is a social group that is defined by its unusual religious or spiritual philosophical beliefs or by its common interest in a particular personality, object, or goal. Not all cults are dangerous. Many new religious movements spring from cults over the millennia of known human existence. This show will tend to focus on the darker side of cults. However, from time to time, we will engage in benevolent cults that do no harm at all. Marcus Wesson's cult is certainly not one of them. Wesson claimed that Jesus Christ was a vampire. Then he proclaimed himself to be, at times, Jesus Christ. And yet, even still at other times, he was the vampire God. His theology is twisted. It's confusing. It's illogical. He had an amazing ability. An amazing ability to memorize biblical scripture and twist the meaning. However, before long, he was writing his own scriptures. Wesson's mother reflected that when he was a child, he would play pretend as a preacher, leading his flock, where he was always the center of attention, among his toys and what little classmates he could trick into coming to his backyard revivals. That game never ended for Marcus Wesson. It only grew more macabre, more bizarre. Eventually, he began to blend the Seventh-day Adventist religion he had been raised in with a strange mix of polygamy and incest. He taught his family that they were like vampires, different in the aspect that they had souls, whereas vampires were a perverted form who could not move around in the daylight because they were soulless. Marcus Wesson was a less-than-impressive student,
He never earned enough credits to graduate high school. For most of his life, Marcus was a quiet individual, often fading into the background without much notice. Wesson grew to be a large man, but even as a teenager, he had more inclined to be bullied rather than the bully himself. However, it was his appearance, not his academics, and not his size, that made him stand out. While other students were wearing jeans and t-shirts, Marcus tended to dress in dress pants, a dress shirt, and a tie. When you began to study Marcus Wesson, you quickly realized no one could see the resemblance between the quiet young man with the crew cut, who loved his electric trains and refused all peer pressure for drugs and alcohol, to the 300-pound dreadlocked monster the world would be introduced to in 2004. I began to ask myself... Could it really be true that the man who was once an ordinary ambulance driver in the army might be guilty of the multiple murders he stood accused of? What made this man go from saving lives to taking them? Marcus aligned on the witness stand that his father molested him and his siblings, his sister, didn't come right out and confirm this, but she did state that when their father was drinking, he was much more inclined to hug and kiss them. Marcus Wesson's father, Benjamin, was a real piece of work, who, as far as we know, would become violent with the children, violent with his wife, and possibly sexually assaulted the entire family. A childhood friend of Wesson's, Gregory Bledsoe, described on the witness stand that Benjamin offered him $50 in exchange for oral sex. Wesson's father, Benjamin, would eventually run off with a male cousin with whom he was having a sexual affair. I can't confirm, but from several of the accounts I've read, it seems this affair had gone on for decades. Eventually, Wesson's father reappears to take on his parental duties. This is one of these areas in the timeline that becomes murky, perhaps. And this is only speculation. This is where Marcus got the idea that it was somehow okay to carry on a sexual relationship with his family and that fathers had special ways of loving their children. We are unaware of how much Wesson's mother, Carrie, knew about the abuse and incest her husband perpetrated upon the children. Likewise, Elizabeth, who Wesson would marry and have children with, she denied knowing anything about Wesson touching the girls or taking them as wives and lovers, even with evidence that clearly shows otherwise. More than once, it was alleged at trial Elizabeth walked in to find one of the girls performing oral sex on her husband. She also said she never suspected Wesson was the father of her daughters and nieces, babies. She never asked, insisting if the girls wanted to know... They would have told her. I doubt it was possible that over a decade of incest resulting in multiple children could anyone go under the same roof without knowing or suspecting. I guess if you believe Marcus Wesson, Elizabeth Wesson, and even her sons, the answer is yes. 
but I find it so difficult to imagine they're in the cramped and often squalidly small quarters the large family occupied. Secrets this dark could be kept for so many years. Marcus Wesson held a strong and psychological hold over the minds of his family and the cult the world has seen before. Reminiscent echoes of other families like the Manson family or the People's Temple, the Branch Davidians. Is it simply a self-survival technique to believe and do what you are told no matter what? As we discuss these criminals, I'm not merely looking to give you the gory details of their crimes. I long to understand the rationale. If I can get inside the mind of a criminal, I might be able to decipher what went wrong and why. Many people, wiser than I, have attempted to create careers out of the understanding the criminal mind, and yet far too often we are left with the mere questions than answers. Marcus Wesson's large, incestuous family started when he impregnated his girlfriend's daughter, 15 years old, Elizabeth Solaro. By 2004, Marcus had 18 children and had adopted several others. The children were brainwashed, isolated from society, psychologically and sexually abused. As time went on, Marcus became more and more unhinged. In 2004, relatives of his wife called the police to rescue the children, but before the police could enter the house, Marcus killed nine of his sons and daughters. In 1986, Marcus Wesson was discharged from the army quickly. He took up with a married woman named Rosemary Mary Tarina. Rosemary was a decade and a half older and already had children of her own. It didn't take long before Wesson and Rosemary had a son together. Rosemary named him Adair. Not long after Adair's birth, Marcus began to spend an unusual amount of time with Rosemary's eight-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. Wesson's interest in Elizabeth soon became physical. When Elizabeth was in middle school, Marcus begged and pleaded with Rosemary to let him marry her. She finally relented when she learned Elizabeth was pregnant. He quietly wed Elizabeth, and in an unofficial home ceremony, a foreshadowing of what he would do to his other daughters and nieces in years to come, the new couple moved into a one-story house while Elizabeth's mother, Wesson's ex-lover and mother of his eldest son, lived in a separate level. If you think this is weird, strap on your boots, cowboys and gals, and welcome to the rodeo. So by now, Wesson has begun creating his unusual family. I'm sure you can imagine it didn't take long for the friction of this living situation to worsen, and Wesson decided it was time for him and Elizabeth to find other living arrangements. One of the terms Rosemary gave was they needed to keep it secret from the rest of the family. Obviously, this kind of thing can't be kept secret long. As soon as her pregnant belly began to show, Rosemary's son Jesse found out. 
he was revolted. Jesse was the most combative with Marcus right from the beginning and the source of a lot of the in-house of violence. And that had occurred between Jesse and Marcus. Jesse would act out and Marcus would physically lay his hands on him and say it was a form of punishment. One night after Marcus had already decided to move out with Elizabeth, Jesse started an argument with Marcus. Marcus used an electrical cord as a whip to beat Jesse. He struck the boy so many times it left permanent scars. A few days later, one of Jesse's family members on his father's side called the police about the abuse. Marcus saw the police through the window because of the glowing blue and red lights. He decided to act fast. He called Jesse into the living room and made a deal with him. Quid pro quo. Jesse promised to keep his mouth shut and Marcus will leave the house that night and take Elizabeth and never return. Jesse agreed. As soon as the police were gone, Marcus began to change the rules of the agreement. Now he needed Rosemary's van, the family's only mode of transportation. This was the last straw for Jesse. And so he began to attack. A bigger, vicious fight ensued. Marcus beat the boy savagely until Jesse found a screwdriver and held it to Marcus's throat. Jesse swore if Marcus hit him again, he would stab him. Marcus backed down and left the house right then with Elizabeth. He and Elizabeth moved in with Marcus's mother, Carrie. By this time, Carrie was kind of used to scandal. Remember her husband, Benjamin, who had moved out with his own cousin slash nephew. Uh, I say it like that, cousin nephew, because it's cited as both in legal documents and I could never really sort it out. Anyway, Carrie let her son and Elizabeth stay in the house, but held them to a strict dietary and religious practices in accordance with the Seventh-day Adventist belief system. Elizabeth observed a shift in Marcus's behavior. Contrary to the way he was around Rosemary, demeaning and violent around his mother, he was meek and docile. He still tended to order Elizabeth around but stopped being physically violent in front of her while living at Carrie's. This situation worked for a while. In mid-1974, Marcus married Elizabeth legally with Rosemary's permission. He was age 27 and she was age 15. A few months later, Elizabeth gave birth to a son named Dorian Carrie became increasingly uncomfortable with the living arrangements. She didn't like the fact that her son lazed around the house all day without a job. She feared her complacency was making him exactly like his father. She decided it was time to kick Marcus, the 27-year-old explosive man-child, and his 15-year-old bride Elizabeth and their baby Dorian out of the house in some half-assed attempt at tough love. Yeah, there's nothing like a mother's intuition, am I right, folks? Surprisingly, Marcus took her advice and his little weird family moved into a house nearby. 
Marcus actually went and got a job as a teller at the local Wells Fargo. He shaved his unruly beard, he cut his dreadlocks off, he became a new man and a reliable employee. Elizabeth and Marcus settled into a comfortable routine about the closest thing to normal in this story. By the time Elizabeth was 19, she had given birth to another son and two daughters. However, her fifth child passed away during childbirth. From the moment the children were born, Marcus treated them harshly. He did not tolerate crying. Even when the children were just a few weeks old, when the babies cried, he ordered Elizabeth to beat them with a stick a half inch thick. Elizabeth stated in court documents she didn't want to punish her children, but that if she didn't, Marcus would do it himself, and he would not be careful. Marcus's short, explosive temper only grew larger with every passing day. He's been... As a bank teller, Mark hated to be told what to do, and he rallied against the state-run environment of the bank. In 1977, the 31-year-old Marcus reached his breaking point. He longed for the old days of being on welfare with Rosemary. He quit his job, he went back on welfare, grew back his large beard and dreadlocks, and of course, Elizabeth didn't object when he quit. Because she's been groomed, listen to this guy since she was nine years old. Abusive groomers work to gain the trust of their victims. The groomer will offer protection. This gives the child a feeling of special relationship. Marcus Wesson preyed on the vulnerability of a child and tricked her into believing they had a special relationship when really he would just wanted a servant. And you'll see that's how he treats her throughout the rest of the story. Marcus took the family to the local Seventh-day Adventist church Saturday in keeping with his own upbringing. He took on the same role in his mother had becoming a spiritual advisor for his family. He began to read scripture to Elizabeth and the children, and again mixed church doctrine with his hardline ideas about everything from polygamy to the afterlife. One night, when the family attended church in October of 1978, 32-year-old Marcus spotted in a new attendee in the pews. Her name was Alabel Lee. She was a pregnant woman about 16 years old. She recently ran away from a fight with her parents about her pregnancy. Marcus began to spend time with Alabel. Alabel once said, at that point, I was looking for someone to depend on, someone to trust. The more time Marcus spent with Alabel, the more he began to offer her advice. As time went on, Marcus slowly rolled out revelations in the same way he hooked Rosemary into believing his theologies. Once he had Elabel believing his ideas, he started expanding on them until the point where he was calling himself God's chosen prophet. He 
had a seriously well-spoken charm and drew the child in. He was supportive and spoke with an authority that made the 16-year-old want to believe in him. So when he consoled her to stop contacting the unborn baby's father, she did. After that, she systematically began to cut off the few remaining people left in her support network, at Marcus's advice, of course. She lived alone in an apartment not far from Marcus's house. After only a few months, Marcus had made it so that she was entirely relying on him for emotional support. One of the key components of highly abusive relationships is physical and social isolation, according to the DSM-5. Abusers are often passionate and do not take responsibility for their actions. Elabel gave birth in 1979. Marcus assisted. In December of 1979, the nature of Marcus and Elabel's relationship changed. While they had always been physical in contact between the two of them with lots of hugging, and on this particular evening, Marcus took things to a new level. He kissed Elabel deeply, then undressed. He told her he loved her. The two of them had sex. This continues for several months until Elizabeth finds out somehow. It's unclear from my research exactly how. Unsurprisingly, Elizabeth was not stoked on this idea, but by now she had been living under the rule of Marcus for 12 years since she was 9 years old. Marcus knew exactly how to manipulate Elizabeth, and she rarely showed him any defiance. However, in this instance, she told him she could never expect being, except being second place to another woman. Marcus did his best to assure Elizabeth that his devotion would always come first. He insisted that should his extramarital relationships continue, it would never distract from the duties at home. Eventually, Elizabeth relented under two conditions. One, Marcus could never get Elabel pregnant. They could only have oral sex. This arrangement continued for years, all the while Marcus was getting more and more eccentric. He was still obsessed with the idea of having multiple wives. He would frequently go on long tirades about the biblical legitimacy of the concept. He began to close his family off from the outside world and keep them isolated. The longer his control over his family, the more tyrannical he became. At some point, Marcus began to exclude himself from the rules of the rest of the family would have to follow. Until this point, Marcus kept his family on the same diet that the Seventh-day Adventist teachings called for, strictly vegetarian. Suddenly, Marcus began to eat meat, but the rest of the family was forced to strictly eat vegetarian. He began to use the family's meager funds to eat out at lavish restaurants. At the same time, he instructed his family to collect food from dumpsters at night. Dr. Eric Meisel 
PhD stated authoritarians love rules for other people. The more quixotic, unclear the rules, the better. Since quixotic, unclear rules are the least possible to follow. For an authoritarian, the rules are there to be broken, so punishment can follow. Marcus Wesson would frequently punish his wife and children if they did not remain constantly at his beck and call. It was at this time he began to give long sermons, the topics of which ever growing farther and farther from the mainstream teachings of his faith. He began to teach that all church clergy were corrupt but him. He rallied and ranted and raved, criticizing the church for not teaching about the second coming of Christ. To his liking, it was at that time that he began to teach his children that the apocalypse was close. So close, in fact, that they would never have the time to grow up, get married, or have children. The children were homeschooled, if you could call it that. Don't get me started on homeschooling. In a curriculum that focused on those ideas, the children were strictly required to read and memorize scripture, along with the guided help of Marcus's bizarre written-by-hand reinterpretation of the Bible. Over the years, he expanded upon his doctrine, growing more and more heretical as time passed. Not only did he designate himself God's final prophet, he declared new revelations to his wife and children among the greatest hits, according to Marcus Wesson. Jesus Christ was an immoral vampire. He would allow his apostles to drink his blood and achieve immortality. Marcus told his kids that God Almighty had designated him as a second God. They believed he was the last in a long line of succession of vampires destined to lead the family to paradise. When Jesus returns to earth, the world would end soon in a blaze of fire and a brimstone, and anyone who didn't believe would be sent to hell. Public schools, police officers, the military, and authority figures were all thought to be dangerous. He told his children government workers work for Satan, and they wanted to stop the children from going to heaven. Marcus believed the only way to protect his family was to expand it. In 1980, when Marcus was 34, Elizabeth gave birth to another son, Almy Wesson. Elizabeth tended to have her babies once a year later than that year while Marcus later on that year while Marcus was driving down the highway his second eldest son Adrian had an accident the four-year-old was fiddling with the lock on the door and accidentally opened it while the car was in motion he tumbled out of the door onto the highway before anyone could reach the baby a semi-truck ram him over. Marcus scrambled to retrieve his son. He was miraculously relatively unharmed. After this incident, Marcus would use this event as a sign of God's blessings on his family. 
This psychopath actually thought he was the only man on earth who could interpret the Bible as God's chosen. In 1982, Marcus had not finished his affair with Elabel and decided it was time to make her one of his wives. He wrote her a letter asking to come to be his second wife. However, Elabel felt inferior as the second wife and declined the offer. She later said that she craved more commitment from Marcus. He cherished Elizabeth and he didn't cherish me. She didn't break things off entirely with him, though. She was still entirely emotionally dependent upon him. She didn't want to be left to raise her child all alone. He had already cut her off from everyone she knew and loved. Marcus tended to play Illabelle's insecurity against her. See, he made sure to let her know Elizabeth was superior. This was a tactic he often see in cult leaders. Take emotional manipulation mixed with divide and conquer. In 1983, a year after declining the relationship advancement, Elabel finally broke it off with Marcus altogether. She bought a car and left for California for good, never saying goodbye. Marcus took her departure to heart. He had been so close to achieving his sick multiple wife fantasies, but he didn't give up or get rid of the idea. He just learned to be more careful in the future, not to make his wife jealous. Also, maybe why roam when you can get it at home? Why go to the mall when you can go across the hall? Ultimately, Marcus is blind to the societal norms for Elabel leaving. See... It's at this point that he begins to separate his family from society even more. With some lies to the bank and a few saved welfare checks, Marcus bought some land in Santa Cruz. All nine of the family members lived in a small, pre-constructed house on the land. At this point, no one left the property but Marcus, not even Elizabeth. They were way up in the mountains. However, Marcus would spend long hours in town and never bothered to explain his absence. Marcus, being the winner, he failed to pay the mortgage. So in less than a year, by 1984, the house was repossessed. At this time, Marcus moved his family to Fresno, California. They moved in with Elizabeth's sister and a few of her cousins who hadn't seen the family in almost 10 years. Think about what a fun family dynamic that is. Your sister and her six brats, along with your stepdaddy brother-in-law, show up on the front doorstep and after 10 years, no call, no show, and need a place to stay. So you and the rest of your cousins move over and let him in. It's reunion time. Also, Marcus's firstborn son, Adair, who he had with Elizabeth's mother, Rosemary, lived there. None of the adults in this house had jobs, so they paid Marcus part of their welfare checks to homeschool the kids in the household. Marcus also began to lead the entire family 
in Bible study three days a week. The rest of the family, including Elizabeth's cousins, became inspired by Marcus's to undergo a religious revival, converting to his belief system and way of thinking. They began to approve his teachings. At this point, he changed the diets of his nieces and nephews to strict vegetarianism. He made them all dress in long, modest skirts for the girls and pants for the boys. He exerted punishment with a stick wrapped in duct tape. No one complained unless they faced his wrath. He had complete authoritarian control of the entire house. Neighbors at this location said the children were like robots. They did not complain, spoke only when spoken to, were unfailingly polite. Another neighbor noted that at trial they did not seem like ordinary children and that they heard one of them call Marcus Master. On more than one occasion by 1986, when Marcus was 40 years old, three more children have been added to the pile. This brought the total child count to nine. At this time, Marcus begins to instruct his kids to only call him Master or Lord. When they pray, they are instructed to pray directly to him. He told them he had a monopoly on religious truth. So after the 12th birthday in 1986, Marcus began to molest his niece, Sophia. He told her it was something he did to all of his daughters. He said his daughters needed to know how to please a man and prepare them for marriage. In 1987, Marcus moved his family to Santa Cruz. When his children, he also brought Elizabeth's niece, Sophia. Altogether, Elizabeth and Marcus left Fresno with 16 children. The youngest was one and the oldest was 13. Marcus decided the best thing to do was buy a boat that was permanently docked in Santa Cruz Harbor and move his family into it. He used his welfare checks and bought it in a friend from church's name so he wouldn't be discovered for welfare fraud. This small vessel was designed to comfortably sleep four people. It wasn't long before Marcus realized this was not going to work for his entire family. So he found a dilapidated school bus and made his children work day and night to refurbish it. With spare parts and tools he stole from junkyards and auto shops. In time, he had made the bus into a makeshift RB. However, running water and electricity remained out of reach. Residents in Santa Cruz Harbor frequently complained about the Wesons. Several local restaurants complained that they would eat out of the dumpster, and multiple convenience stores called the police after they were fined bathing and using unattended hoses, bathroom sinks, and so on. The children spent three days collecting aluminum cans to sell the recycling plant. As the years continue like this, Marcus gets stranger and stranger. His dreadlocks now reached the middle of his back. Anywhere he went, a prominent odor followed. He took to wearing a ratty, dingy, and disgusting brown cloak-like cape. 
and using a walking stick, he began to prowl the streets. He preached. He sermonized about God's grace, the end times, and how he could offer protection. I found one local resident who described them on the stand as out-of-touch cult leader ignored by most people. What shocked me is so many people could see who and what he was, yet no one would do anything about him. Most people preferred to just leave the Wessons be. Concerned citizens did call Child Protective Services several times, but they were unable to keep up with the nomadic family. See, the problem was Marcus knew to move around a lot. After one visit, the Wessons family disappears into the mountains for weeks, and CPS could never conduct a follow-up investigation. After a year in the bus and the boat, Marcus's children pleaded that they be given more comfortable accommodations. In 1988, Marcus made yet another scheme with a landowner outside of Santa Cruz. A.J. Wheeler agreed to rent out a quarter of an acre of unoccupied land to the Wessons for $500 a month. The family was allowed to camp on the land and eventually own it outright in a rent-to-own sort of scenario. The landowner agreed to keep his name off the official lease, probably to avoid any sort of welfare entanglements. Unfortunately for Marcus, the state of California recognized a discrepancy in his official vote ownership paper, vote ownership paperwork, and they launched an investigation. Marcus was facing potential prison time. So he cut his hair, cleaned himself, lawyered up, and showed up at court for the first time. In 1990, Marcus faced charges for welfare fraud. Marcus Wesson was what psychologists call a self-monitoring social chameleon, able to change and adapt his behavior to any situation he found himself in. So while in court, he was well-spoken, but when at home, he became a monster. Marcus had grandiose delusions of being a second god. He thought he was smarter than everyone. So, of course, against his lawyer's advice, he argued that his boat was his home. Therefore, he had a right to purchase it with his welfare checks. Investigators knew it was impossible for his large family to live on such a small boat. So, after minimal digging, they discovered the campground where the family really stayed most of the time. After only an hour or two of deliberation, the jury convicted Marcus of welfare fraud and perjury. Marcus was sentenced to three months in prison and five years of probation. After his incarceration, he continued to try to get around the law. Marcus sent numerous letters to the judge asking to have the convictions overturned and filled multiple motions claiming public defender refused to file pretrial motions. All of his motions and appeals went nowhere. Marcus was released in 1991 after serving his three months, realizing he couldn't manipulate the court system the way he could manipulate his family. He put him ever at odds with society. 
Marcus established a philosophy from then on for dealing with the government. He refused to sign any documents. This included his own children's birth certificates. He documented this in the handwritten treatises he used to, air quotes, educate his children. Marcus wrote, quote, a man is in the jurisdiction of equity, ethics, and legality when he takes advantage of loopholes in the law for the benefits of his family, end quote. The only thing incarceration taught Marcus was he he keeps his family even further segregated from society. After his welfare fraud conviction, he had no way of paying for his large family. Luckily, his eldest son had just turned 18, so he was eligible for welfare benefits. The checks were passed on to Marcus. He used the money to improve the campsite his family were still living in. It seems that at this same time, his desire for isolation seemed to ramp up. So did his sexual perversions. After he returned from prison, he began to sexually abuse his own daughters, starting when the girls were as young as seven or eight years old. He abused them multiple times a week. He avoided intercourse until the girls were 17, but he still made the girls to perform other sexual acts. He told all of them that he was preparing them for marriage. Elizabeth agreed to all these acts by turning a blind eye. However, However, she refused to participate in the molestation. She knew it was occurring. Several times she walked in on the crimes over the years. Elizabeth was in a deep state of denial. She was psychologically incapacitated when experiencing the possibility that her children are being sexually abused. Daniel, uh, denial can hinder a mother's ability to acknowledge abuse has occurred in the first place. Elizabeth clung to her denial in order to shield herself from the sick reality of her husband's actions. Remember when the woman was sexually abused by Marcus herself since she was nine years old. It is entirely possible that she thought this was the normal spectrum of human behavior. In 1993, Marcus was inspired by David Koresh of all people to intensify his sexual abuse. During the wide media coverage of the Waco standoff, Marcus watched the event with his family. He told them David Koresh was a godly man. The government should not be interfering with his family. Marcus decided it was time to have a large family like the Branch Davidians. He told his daughters Elizabeth was past the age where she could have children. Elizabeth was only 33 at the time, but you know, creepers got a creep. She did have nine children between the ages of 15 and 26, so we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. 
or not being able to have any more, Marcus gathered all the girls in the house except for his wife in a room. Five of the girls are his biological daughters and the other four were his nieces. Their ages range from 7 to 17. Marcus told his girls that great men like David Koresh had large families in order to lend them to the afterlife. He told them in order to lead more people to heaven, they would need to bear his children. They would be surrogates to Elizabeth since she could no longer have kids. It took some convincing, but being the manipulative weasel he was, it didn't take long. Most of these girls have been raised from birth to believe Marcus Wesson was a god. Marcus then went to his wife and decided to tell her family his new plan. Surprise, surprise. She was actually uncomfortable with it. For Elizabeth, Marcus had finally gone too far. Even for a woman who had spent half her life following his every word unquestionably, she told Marcus they would have to talk about it later. But after several conversations, she agreed to the request, with the stipulation that the girls had to be 18, and M Marcus negotiated her down to 17 and a half. In the meantime, Marcus focused on his goal of making the mountain campground habitable. To his standards, by 1995, he finally felt like he had succeeded in turning the land into a military-style encampment. He was proud of his compound. He had a long green army barracks with bunk beds installed for the children, a 5,000-gallon septic tank, and a makeshift outhouse for drinking water. They filled up dozens of gallons of milk jugs on occasional trips to Santa Cruz. They had no electricity. This is the place Marcus air quotes again, marries the first of his daughters. One at a time, starting with Sophia, his niece, now age 20, then her half-sister Ruby and his own daughter Kiani. He had them place her hands on the Bible and swear allegiance to them, then gave them all wedding rings. Marcus and finally achieved his goal of a polygamous marriage. He just had to use his home family to do it. Within just a few months, Marcus had impregnated all three of his new wives. However, he kept the fact that the girls as quiet the fact of the girls as quiet as possible he told his sons and nephews that the girls were artificially inseminated the girls went on without any kind of medical care throughout their pregnancies kiani did not even see a doctor until 2 weeks before her due date the following year sophia and ruby had their children on the birth certificates, the women mark the father as unknown at the direction of Marcus. During this time, the family was surviving on oatmeal and watered-down soup. They had no money to get to Santa Cruz to even collect 
Warner. Marcus's niece, 26-year-old Brandy, was starting to get fed up. Being one of the oldest girls, she often fought with Marcus. Marcus didn't understand that as a child, she had a learning disability. As her homeschool teacher, he often physically abused her when she did not learn as fast as the other girls. After the first few babies were born, Brandy put two and two together and realized that Marcus would move on to her next. She was disgusted at the thought. She woke up early in the morning one day and ran away. She managed to hitchhike to Santa Cruz. She called her mother Rosemary, Elizabeth's sister. It had been ten years since Rosemary saw her daughter after abandoning her with Marcus ten years earlier. She wasn't exactly pleased to hear from your da her daughter. At first, she told her to go back to Marcus. After some tearful begging and pleading, Rosemary eventually agreed to come pick up Brandy. After a few days, Rosemary got in contact with the Wessons and told them Brandy was safe. Marcus decided that given the family's financial situation, he didn't need her back. In 1997, the whole family was evicted again. The owner of the land Marcus was renting passed away, and the owner's son kicked the Wessons out. Marcus decided it was time for his eldest sons to move out and find work. 24-year-old Dorian and 23-year-old Adrian were told they needed to send money back for the first two years they lived on their own. This created an income for Marcus, but it still wasn't enough. Marcus told his three younger wives and his daughter, Sabrina, that they would need to find work as well. Marcus moved his family back to Fresno, where is the extended family owned a duplex. The Wessons took over the second floor. The four oldest daughters got jobs at the local McDonald's. Marcus drove them to work every morning and also collected their paychecks every Friday. They were ordered to do their work without talking due to the girls' industriousness. They were trained as managers within months. The extra money coming in, Marcus decided to make his first large purchase. He bought nine coffins from an antique shop for $400. He took the coffins to the duplex to be used as beds for the children. They treated the use of the coffins as a joke in the household, but no one in the real world seems to understand the punchline. Marcus began to beat his wives more and more in fear they were taking, talking to other men. Ruby had a defiant attitude and was not afraid of Marcus. Soon after acquiring her McDonald's job, she decided to run away, like Brandy had years earlier. She understood it would mean leaving her nine-year-old daughter. Aviv behind. She left work early with her co-worker Emma and stayed the night at her house. The next morning, Elizabeth found Ruby and insisted she come out of the van and come out to the van and talk to Marcus just for a talk. As soon as Ruby got in the van, however, Marcus sped off, driving them back to the duplex. 
When they arrived, Marcus dragged Ruby upstairs. He kept her locked in the bedroom for 12 hours. He demanded that she promise to never leave again. When she refused, he beat her on the top of her head where no one could notice the marks. She told him she wanted a family of her own and to be married someday, and he told her she already was married. By the time the next morning rolled around, she was beaten down. She quit her McDonald's job and started a job at the restaurant one town over. Marcus now knew that Ruby had a taste for the defiance, and he beat her relentlessly for 10 days straight after the escape incident. By the end of the beating, her welts were so painful she couldn't sit or sleep. Marcus decided it must have been time in the city that corrupted his wives, so he decided to revisit an old plan of creating a compound offshore. He bought a tugboat in Marshall, California, about 200 miles away from Fresno, named the Sedan. The boat was old, decrepit, and inoperable. He made his wives and daughters get jobs at the conference center in town. Like always, Marcus didn't have to work. Every morning, the family would row to shore in a dinghy. Marcus sat at the back of the boat and never took turns rowing. When they got to shore, the women would start the half-mile hike to work. At the conference center, and the boys would dispose of the family's bodily fluids and waste from the boat in whatever porta potties they could find. The women would work 10 hour days in the kitchen and the conference center, so to keep his wives from having wandering eyes, once a week he would host when he what he called girl talks during these talks he would instruct his girls one-on-one -on -one about the tenets of womanhood and probe them to make sure none of them were talking to any men at work tattling was encouraged and if any of his women were found in violation he would spank them for many hours afterwards he would force them to kiss him the women would regularly be called into the back of the boat to be sexually assaulted by Marcus. He played the women off each other. I genuinely think most of the women girls didn't know what was happening to them. His niece Sophia said, quote, each of us had a totally different life with him. He knew each girl individually. Some were stronger than others. Some were weaker in some ways. That's how we worked Marcus had manipulated all of his children and wives since they were small. He had an exploitative, authoritarian, manipulative personality. It took a calculated and well-timed mind to keep 18 children in line and in the dark about all the sick, perverse deeds he was a part of. Marcus Wesson used shame to keep his family in line. Authoritarian personalities tend to want you diminished and broken. That is how they keep you in line. That is how they control you. And Marcus Wesson was a sick master of it. 
Religion was one of Marcus Wesson's main tactics of control and shame. It was on the sedan that Marcus began working on his masterpiece of religious manipulation, his magnum opus of theocratic perversion. The title of it was In the Night of the Light for the Dark. It was a 1,000-page document, all composed of an old, on an old typewriter, a genuine mishmash of poetry, autobiography, and religious ideology. Marcus Wesson's doctrine, all he decided to give himself a new vampiric name. Marcus was now called Jivam Marx Aspire. Some of his kids' names were changed as well. His one-year-old son and his daughter, Kiani. He called the boy Jiva and combined of Jesus and vampire. Marcus later said his teachings were meant to be metaphysical and not taken literally, but his children claimed they had no idea what he was talking about or meant by any of it. His children understood that their role in the family was to serve Marcus Wesson and his every whim and his every will. By the middle of 1998, the family of 20 had been living on the tugboat of the sedan for a better part of a year. Marcus continued to rule his family with fear and intimidation. Marcus continued to molest and sexually abuse his children and nieces. Some of Marcus's young wives were beginning to be sick of his treatment, and none were more fed up than 21-year-old Ruby. Ruby had tried to escape the year before, but never gave up hope of leaving one day. Her day finally arrived. Ruby realized the rest of the family was out and that she was the only person on board, the Sudan. She later said she hated to leave her daughter behind, but she knew she could never get another opportunity like this. She rode the small dinghy to shore and hitchhiked to the nearest bus station. She had so some money, but she couldn't get a ticket, so she began to cry. Her situation and a total stranger took it upon herself to help the girl get out and give her a place to stay for the night. The next day, the nice lady bought her a ticket to Fresno to stay with friends. Unfortunately, after a few days with her friends, her lack of funds forced her to go to her mother, Rosemary. Ruby told her mother everything about how Marcus was the father of her child and how he beat them regularly and about his differing, strangely diverging religious practices. Her mother was unmoved. She told her daughter that it was her choice to marry Marcus as a 17-year-old, and that she would need to live with the consequences. Ruby could see there was no reasoning with her mother. She left for her half-brothers, but the only a few days in passed, and Elizabeth showed up. 
to talk to her into meeting up with Marcus. Ruby knew her second escape plan was failing, and she wondered if she would be doomed to live with this family forever. Meanwhile, Marcus and Elizabeth were out trying to get Ruby back. A crisis unfolded aboard the sedan. Sophia and the older boys were left in charge while Marcus and Elizabeth were gone. Almost as soon as they had left, some of the boys spotted a suspicious white van on shore. And then another suspicious white van. Marcus had warned the children for years that one day agents of the government would arrive to break up the family. Safina watched the two vans as they continued to drive in circles. She could just make out the word progressive on the side of one of the vans. Sophia gathered, gathered and led the children under deck and collected the twenty-two caliber pistol she was ready to carry out her orders. Marcus had taught the children how to carry out a murder-suicide pact if the government ever closed in on the family. Marcus had said on more than one occasion that it was better for the family to get die together and go to the Lord than to be taken by Child Protective Services. Safina, he loaded, she loaded the gun while the rest of the children held hands. She came to the conclusion she didn't go through with it after she had the gun loaded without the commandments of Marcus. A few of the older boys volunteered to row to shore and find a payphone to call Marcus. And after a tense half hour, the boys returned to the boat with news that Marcus had told them to stop what they were doing. It was not time to carry out the plan. Those vans weren't secret government agents. Back in Fresno, Elizabeth had showed up at her son's house to convince Ruby to return. At first, she stood her ground, but Elizabeth was relentless. Eventually, Ruby gave in. Ruby agreed she would meet Marcus at Denny's, but only to say goodbye. Marcus tried to wear her down at the restaurant, battering and belittling her for four hours. She stood her ground and eventually he left. The next day, Marcus found her again at, the, her, at her brother's. This time, he brought four children, including Ruby's two-year-old daughter, Aviv. She, she cared for them at her mother's house. After three weeks, Marcus returned and told her it was her responsibility to care for these children. He begged her not to leave the family. How could she abandon the little ones? She voluntarily once again returned. For the second time, Marcus had managed to bend her to his will, and Ruby now felt more helpless than ever before. That same year, Safina fell in love with a co-worker at the conference center. A few months after the murder-suicide insurance van debacle, Safina told Marcus she kissed a man and wanted to move out on her own. Marcus screamed at Safina for hours, but it was no use. She, unlike Ruby, had an iron will.
Eventually, Marcus agreed to take her to her aunt's house. Late that night, Marcus and Safina rode to shore and took the van. On the way to San Jose, Marcus began to accuse her of infidelity. Her denials began to make him more angry and reckless. Eventually, Marcus slammed on the brakes and made a U-turn. Safina started to cry. Marcus told her she would never leave. The expression on his face made her weep. When they arrived back at the bay, Marcus's anger seemed to be gone. He smiled and looked deep in Safina's eyes. He asked her, Do you love the Lord? And then he stabbed her without warning in the chest. Safina remembers passing out, and when she wakes up, Marcus is watching her deeply. He asked if she wanted to go meet God. Safina was confused, but with it enough to say no and beg for her life. Marcus began to cry and apologize for what he had done. Then he makes her swear to never tell anyone. Safina agrees, and he helps her back into the tugboat. A week or so later, she began to recover. She was once again trapped. Marcus ordered his other children to give her the cold shoulder. Safina was now more alone than ever. The next year, family the next year the family was evicted from the boat i guess leaving a broken boat anchored in the bay was illegal once again the family moved back to fresno they moved back into the duplex with extended family after the move ruby was once again determined to escape the only reason she had returned in the first place was for her new three, her, her three-year-old daughter, Aviv. She decided she couldn't take the suffering anymore. She decided to live with or without her child. She fell in love with a man at a fast food restaurant where she worked on the, and the two of them eloped. After a few weeks, she called Elizabeth to let her know she was okay. Marcus got on the phone. He demanded she come home, but this time she had the support of her new husband and refused to be bullied. She told Marcus she was never coming back and hung up the phone. With Ruby gone for good, the family fell into a strange calm, and Safina continued silent treatment for years. The year was now 2001. Safina was depressed and suicidal. Her only friend was an old na man named Milton, where she worked at the hotel. Milton knew she was depressed and worked hard to get her to open up. The other Wesson girls witnessed the interactions between Safina and Milton and told Marcus. Marcus beat Savina savagely. Savina continued to see Milton, and after a few months, once again, told Marcus she wanted to move out. Marcus felt her negative attitude was infecting the family, so he agreed to give her some independence. 
she would need to live with her mother and send back the, her entire paycheck for two years. After a few months of living with her mother, she became pregnant with Milton's child. She was afraid to tell Marcus, but knew he would find out when he could see when she began to show signs of her pregnancy. He took it upon, she took it upon herself to confess to Marcus the next day. To her surprise, Marcus wasn't upset. He asked if he could keep the baby. When she refused, Marcus sent her away without another word. For Safina, the hardest part of leaving was walking away without her five-year-old son, Jonathan. But she knew she had to leave. Marcus was now down to two wives, Elizabeth and his daughter, Kiani. Marcus replaced his lost wives with his daughter, Sabrina, and his niece, Rosa. By 2003, both women had given birth to more children, bringing the grand family total back to 20. Marcus siphoned money from his grown children's accounts and bought a building in Fresno. Marcus used Elizabeth's name on the deed. Remember we talked earlier about how Marcus had an aversion to signing anything himself. Because of his many welfare frauds, he had a good reason fearing legal trouble. This time, the building was sold as a business. No one was supposed to be living there. The family moved in under the cover of darkness and in secret. The children were kept in the house at all hours except under special circumstances. Other people who worked in the area knew some of the Wessons were coming and going from the building but had no idea 20 people were dwelling within it. The family managed to stay in the building for a year before the city caught wind of their illegal inhabitation. In March 2004, they were evicted yet again. No one in the family was surprised to be evicted again. By now, this had become a routine part of life for the Wessons. Safina, however, was disturbed when Elizabeth told her the family would be moving but refused to tell her where they were going. Safina's now eight-year-old son, Jonathan, lived with Marcus and Elizabeth, so she had good reason to fear them disappearing. She decided that if she was ever going to get Jonathan back, she had to act fast. She decided to contact Ruby. Ruby had completely cut herself off from the family, unlike Safina, who still had some contact. Ruby's seven-year-old daughter, Aviv, was still being held captive by Marcus. Ruby agreed it was time to take their children back before Marcus could disappear for good. They began to network to extended family who knew about the abuses Marcus inflicted upon his clan. They needed to be careful who they talked to. They knew many members of the family at large hated Marcus. With the help of their uncles and aunts and cousins, they formulated a plan to show up at the house and force Marcus to turn over Safina and Ruby's children. If he refused, the men would distract Marcus while Ruby and Safina ran in to get the kids out. They executed the plan on March 12, 2004. Some of the Wessons, including Elizabeth, and some of the older men were out of the house at the time, but Marcus was home. 
Safina arrived first, being led into the house without issue. She often came to deliver groceries, help with the household chores, give money or see her son. She tried to retrieve Jonathan, but was stopped by two of Marcus's young daughter-niece wives, Kiana and Rosa. They began to argue in the house at the same time Marcus stepped outside and saw a mob of extended family. Marcus stayed completely calm despite being outnumbered. He asked them all to leave, and they refused. The police were called after Kiani and Rosa attacked Safina in the house. They chanted Judas, Judas, demanding that she bow at Marcus's feet after the police arrived. Marcus continues to act calmly, trying his best to charm the officers and appear to be only reasonable person on the scene. This strategy could be described as a key tactic of manipulative people. Manipulators project their own concerns onto the world, finding evidence in it only enough to support their preconceived notions of reality. Marcus tried his best to control the narrative. He repeatedly stated Ruby and Safina were no longer the children's mothers. He claimed they had willingly surrendered their parental rights to him when they let, let left the family. He left out all the parts where they were physically and emotionally and sexually threatened and coerced. For once, it looked like Marcus wasn't going to get his way. Safina and Ruby had their birth certificates for the children and showed them to the officers. It showed only their names, not Marcus. His longtime paranoia of not signing documents was about to bite him in the ass. In response, the officers told Marcus to bring the children outside. Marcus changed his tactics and refused to comply. He would not let the police in without a warrant and demanded they call their superiors. In the meantime, Elizabeth had her oldest son's had arrived back home and joined in the chaos. Additional police officers and Child Protective Services were called to the scene, but events escalated. In the confusion of all the arguing and threats, Marcus slipped around behind the building and inside. Safina and Ruby alerted the police to the absence of Marcus, but by now Marcus had been gone for several minutes. It was too late and the group outside heard muffled gunshots over the shouting. Elizabeth went inside the house and flew out screaming a moment later. She ran into Safina's arms and whispered, they're all gone. Safina and Ruby broke down crying. The police yelled for Marcus to come out with his hands up. When Marcus emerged, he was soaked in blood. His face was completely neutral. He did not resist being patted down and thrown into the back of the police car. No one could have been prepared for the grisly scene inside. 
Officer Eloy Escanero was the first to enter the building. He was followed by Officer Tello. Eloy Escanero made his way down the darkened corridor slowly, approaching the door to the southeast bedroom with the shotgun drawn. He noticed the door ajar, pushing it open. He waved his flashlight across the room. All he could see were the outlines and shapes beginning to form. His eyes adjusted to the darkness. Three large coffins were leaning up against the wall. Officer Tello entered the room and found a light switch along the wall. He turned it on. Escanero dropped his shotgun in horror. Bodies were stacked on the other side of the coffins. In the northeast corner of the room where a large pool of blood perforated the floor. The eldest victims, the most visible, covering the bodies of the children. All the children were shot in the eye. And an ambulance was called, but there was no saving the children. In total, nine were killed that day. They ranged in ages from 1 to 25. No one, not even Wesson's defense attorney, would attempt to deny the charges against him involving incest. Instead, he summed up things by telling the jury that his client was a flawed man. The post-mortem DNA tests proved that Marcus had fathered every victim that they lay dead that day in the back room on March 12, 2004. Neither Wesson nor his attorney made any effort at explanation. Although the 1,000-page book Marcus had written titled In the Night of the Light for the Dark contained within it a section he titled The Premium of Incest. The passage seemed to justify his reasoning behind incest, but not the murders. On June 17, 2005, the tension in the courtroom was palpable when it filled upon receiving word that after a week and a half of deliberation, the jury had agreed to a unanimous verdict. Marcus Wesson was sentenced to death for all nine murders and 14 counts of sexual abuse. Elizabeth was given immunity for her complicity in exchange for a complete cooperation during the investigation. Today, the brutal legacy of Marcus Wesson lives on and several of his children still appear to be in contact with him. In 2006, federal court orders froze any death penalty cases in California, and on March 13, 2009, Governor Gavin Newsom signed Executive Order N0919, instituting a moratorium on the death penalty in California in the form of a reprieve for all people sentenced to death. The executive order also called for repealing California's lethal injection protocol and the immediate closing of the execution chamber at San Quentin State Prison. The order did not provide for the release of any individual from prison or otherwise after any current conviction or sentence. Pursuant to the executive order, no no executions can take place. What I'm about to say is political, so if you don't want to hear it, cover your fucking ears. Fuck Gavin Newsom. 
If anyone deserves to die, it's Marcus Wesson. I don't care what you think about the death penalty. It's reserved for the most extreme cases, and I think we can all agree this is one of the most extreme cases. We don't know entirely what happened with the remaining family. We don't know some of the younger children were cared for by Elizabeth, and some of the older children managed to get state-sponsored counseling. They have done their best to adapt to a new way of life. They can never forget that day in March, or the punishment they suffered at the hands of Marcus Wesson. Wesson sits on death row at San Quentin. Marcus Wesson is 72 now and is unlikely to ever face any form of execution. Marcus Wesson's sentence seems to have been converted from death to life without parole after the mortuarium on the death penalty was placed in his state of California. So, where are the rest of the Wessons today? A reporter who interviewed the children shortly after the murder decided she couldn't just stand by. Alyssa Sofios acted on instinct despite knowing she was breaking a large rule of journalism, never become part of the story. She invited three of the women to live with her, Elizabeth Gypsy and Kiani had never been to school, had no money. Alyssa knew this. The four women lived in an apartment together. Since the arrest, Gypsy has gone on to have a daughter with a different man and named the girl Alyssa in honor of the woman that took her in. Kiani also has a daughter of her own. Marcus Wesson started a cult. He killed half his family, and most definitely, he was a creep. I hope Marcus continues to rot in San Quentin, but I wish he would get the death penalty, like he was sentenced. As long as California has its liberal head shoved up its liberal ass, that won't ever happen. That's all for now, folks. Try not to start a cult this week. Kill your own family members, or God forbid, start creeping on any of them. I'm Joel McClure, and this is Cults, Killers, and Creeps. We'll see you next time. Until then, scream if you need to.